This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello everybody and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. This week we are engaging in a special episode, uh, the first of two this week, because we have so much to talk about. So this week we're going to talk about transfers, we're going to talk about spares, we're going to look ahead to Brighton and obviously we're going to look back at West Ham as well. And the second episode this week, which will be coming later towards the weekend, will be solely dedicated to Manchester City. But as ever, I'm joined by David Hughes. Dave, how's things? Yeah, good, mate. Um, looking forward to talking about some uh, some transfers because it's uh, it's been a rarity for us in the past. But obviously, the, at the end of this window and the end of the last, we've had things to discuss. So I'm looking forward to to doing that today. Yeah, well, Liverpool were going down the route of not signing anyone up until the very, very end of the window. It seemed to be Joel Massop's injury, which pushed you know the straw that broke the camel's back, if you like. And uh, Liverpool have, have since went and signed two. So we're going to be talking about the two centre-backs that Liverpool did go and sign. Quick word on to Kumin Amino as well, who's gone on loan to Southampton. But uh, I think, first of all, we're going to go down the route of, Dem- of uh, Ben Davis who is a centre-back that, I must admit, he, he did drift under my radar. I wasn't really aware of him. Um, he, he wasn't a player that had shown up to me. But I think you you, you was. you know I, I think I'm probably going to have to lean on you for, for this one because uh, I know you've wrote about him. I think you've you know maybe watched him in the past or whatever. So I think uh, you know I can, I can let you take the floor with this one, Dave. Yeah, yeah, he's a player that I really rate. Um uh, you know, Preston are a team that I've, I've kept an eye on with one or two others in the Championship because uh, I know they've had some good players in recent years. I think probably the two standouts are Ben Davis uh, and Ben Pearson. Pearson's just moved to Bournemouth in the same window. Um, although by all accounts, he, you know, he, he should be playing a Premier League level. Every time I've watched him, he's looked really good. Uh, I spoke to our producer guy who does a lot of commentary on Preston and you know we really rate him and said he should be pre- playing a Premier League level uh, so maybe that eventually comes but um, yeah in terms of obviously Ben Davis now is playing in the Premier League with Liverpool and it's 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 I think it's a really good option for Liverpool you know he's a he's a left-footed centre-back uh, that's a profile Liverpool haven't got in that position um, he's, he's a good size six foot one but weirdly, Josh, I don't know when you've if you've had a look at him since the, the announcements. Um, he's not that great in the air, certainly this season anyway. He's had a below aerial dual success rate, below average aerial dual success rate, I should say. Um, just over 50%. I think the league average is around 59, which, you know, given the size, is a little bit of a surprise. But maybe that's something to work on in the coming weeks and months. Uh, it's all around defensive approach. You know, he tends to be pretty measured and composed. Um, he's not very rash, doesn't go to the floor that often, which is important because I think it makes you a little bit more difficult to bypass in terms of dribbles or you know, less susceptible to giving away cheap fouls. Uh, and then, you know, he's got good physical attributes as well. He's uh, he's quick, got really good pace. Um, I, thought I've, I, I was having a look yesterday and, and Preston's PPDA, which is obviously uh, a metric used to measure how you press high up the pitch, how intense it is. Um, 
their average so far this season is very similar to Liverpool's. So obviously, if you think of the action uh, Preston as a team, inevitably you need that higher defensive line. Now, when, when I've watched Preston, their line doesn't seem as aggressive as, as Liverpool's, but it is a fairly high line. And you know, that means that in that sense, he's got some experience. But you know, I just think when you consider his profile and the fee that's being paid, which is a really low one because obviously he was coming to, to the end of his contract in the summer. Um, I just think it represents some really good business. Uh, Liverpool brought in one of the best, one of the better centre backs from the Championship, and you know he's still a decent age at twenty five, and I think he's gonna, he's probably gonna have a, a, an important role over these next coming months. Yeah, I think it's it's one of them that like when it's needs most, it, it can't, it couldn't really have been much of a better deal. Uh, you know the risk, as you said, is very low. The fee is very low. Obviously, his contract was supposed to run out in six months' time. I think he was on the verge of going to Celtic when it when he does turn into a free. Um, and we've poached him from there. I think uh, you know I was speaking to before we came on to start actually recording. I was speaking to to Guy, our producer, and I think he covers Preston a fair bit. I think he's hosted Preston podcasts and stuff like that. And he he said he was um, ready for the Premier League about two years ago. So. That bodes well for us. Uh, his aerial stuff, I wasn't aware of. I didn't think it was that bad. Fifty percent is quite concerning. I thought it was yeah. about the sixties. Yeah, it was. It was. It was basically um, around maybe fifty-one percent. And as I said, the league average was was over fifty-nine. So it, it is a little bit of concern because obviously that's something you, you need to be quite aerial dominant in Liverpool backline, don't you? Um, but you know it's. That's, I've only looked at half a season's worth of data there. Uh, I haven't looked at historical data. Could be a little bit better. Um, and it's hopefully if it is a bit of a deficiency in his game, then maybe it's something he can improve on in, 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 in the Liverpool side in the coming weeks and months. Yeah, last season it's it's down as 59.6. And the season before it's down as 53.9. So, yeah, mm. probably probably not. It's strength, to be honest. Then, um, but I think I think he does make up for that in certain other areas, and I don't think you'll you'll ever get a, a full, well-rounded package for for as little as two million. I think you've you've probably got to accept limitations in certain areas, and wh- whereby he he might fall down in the air. I think the lad that we're pairing him with, which which we will get to, hopefully has that on his side. In fact, he does, but we will get to that. Um, but one one thing I did notice when looking at at Davis was um I think his his distribution from the back is his inclination to play the odd little long pass, diagonal pass over the top and stuff like that. Um quick little avenues into the final third. A, a means of beating the press as well. Uh differentiating your build up and stuff like that. He seems to have that to his game, uh which which I like. Because I think that's yeah. that's something that Liverpool have been um they, they've had to consciously keep applying it to keep it as part of the game whereas with Van Dijk it was very naturally just did it anyway but when when Gomez was trying to do it when Fabinho was trying to do it and to a lesser extent I think when Henderson does it you can tell it's kind of it's a bit more robotic it's a bit more um, you can tell it's been an instruction maybe before the game whereas with Van Dijk it was just natural it just happened because it was a natural part of his game and that looks a bit more the case with Davis. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean there. Like it's a little bit more orchestrated, almost. Yeah, but, yeah, um, exactly, yeah. yeah. With um, I, I, just on that point, actually, uh, I did touch on it in the piece that as uh, I think it's gone live in the Liverpool Echo today. If anyone wants to have a look, uh, 
we're recording on Tuesday. Um, but I did find it interesting on that specific point you raised that in terms of long passes per 90, um, he's basically this season averaged a pretty identical uh, number on a per 90 basis compared to Van Dyke last season. Um, and, you know, Davis's success rate in them is actually around 70-odd percent. I think Van Dyke's was 50-odd. Now, I'd argue that it, it it's not always a necessity to to be uh, having high pass success rates in, in those type of balls. Like, I, you know, I've, it, it is great when they find their tender target, but even sometimes it just creates really good kind of counter-pressing situations, doesn't it? Especially for... For Liverpool, who were really good at that, so it is interesting that he's he's got a similar output in that regard, and it does suggest that he may be able to, you know, replicate it at Liverpool and fill that void a little bit that's been left without without Van Dijk. I think he's a, he's a good age as well. I think he's he's the kind of age whereby you know he's he's probably done a lot of us developing, certainly on the on the mental side, and I think he should be able to. To come into this Liverpool squad now, and whereas some some might be a little bit intimidated, um, overawed sort of thing, with with the the players that they're playing with, I think he he seems to be quite a by all accounts he's, he's quite a confident person. He's quite a you know a bit of a charismatic leader type thing in the back line and stuff. And I think given his age, you know, technically twenty five is when many people believe that you start your peak years. And I'm not sure of it. Little bit older, maybe even for for a centre back, but I think Liverpool are getting them for for what is supposed to be a, his his prime years, and um, you know if if it works out fairly well or or whatever, or Liverpool are able to do something different further down the line, maybe he could even be sold on for a little bit of a profit, considering we're getting them for two million. You know, if, if it seemed like, I mean, if he if he does okay, but still Liverpool want to upgrade, like him him doing really really well. It, it's still possible that Liverpool will will need better even than that. So it's it, it's possible that you know further down the line, he can be sold at the age of like twenty seven, twenty eight or so, to um, maybe a Bournemouth. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were going to say Bournemouth. <laughs> as far as he hasn't played for them, yeah. um, and then and then Liverpool can just get like a, you know a bit of an upgrade for the profit. So it, it's just a kind of deal that it's just such a I just love the way my club do business, I must be honest. The, the way Liverpool find solutions to these little problems. I don't know why we didn't do it earlier. Well, I do know why we didn't do it really. We didn't think it was that big of an issue, but obviously now that Fabinho's picking up the odd little knock, mass himself for the season, you can't really avoid it any longer. But even despite that, the way Liverpool have gone about business on, on, on deadline day, which is historically, you know, mental, it, I think Liverpool will come out the opposite end Again, with, with with two really solid deals that, um, in a way, can't really go wrong. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think uh, I just I think the biggest part is that, as I said, his, his profile is good. There is a lot to like, um, but I think the big thing is that what what's being paid that can be the difference maker between a, a really good deal or or not. Because um, you know, I think it had Liverpool paid twenty million, for example. Whether we're saying he's a he's a good player, whether people the likes of guy who we touched on before, who's watched him week in week out, says he's worth that. There's still that element of risk attached to it, isn't it? But if you've if you paid what is it one point five mil something like that, then you know there's so 
it's almost a I wouldn't say a free hit, but it's it's just you're not going to lose any sleep either if it's a deal that doesn't work out. So yeah, it's a, it's a good move. And then obviously about to come on to Kabak as well. Um, you know that was a good piece of business as well, and it from the same perspective. Yeah, just one more little point on Davis as well. Again, just twigging memory there. I was speaking to a guy again before the before the podcast, and he said he was vaguely comparable to um, in terms of level and quality to Adam Webster, who, who was picked up by um, by Brighton fairly fairly recently, maybe last summer or so. Centre back from Bristol City, I think he was playing for at the time, and he's come in. And obviously, did a, did a decent job. Of, Brighton at the minute, but I think Brighton had to pay about 25 million for him, I think, at the time. Mm. Um, so for Liverpool to get a, a similar level centre back from the championship for, for his for buttons, really. Um, you know, Liverpool are probably getting more for for, for loan and Mina Mina out, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, you mentioned Kabak there when we want to him, he's probably uh, more of the stellar name, let's say. I mean, there's not there's an option to buy in there for 18 million. So he has a bit more of a potential to be a, a consistent Liverpool centre back for the next couple of years and stuff. Uh, general thoughts on him, Dave? We, you know, we, we were you aware of him before this? I've seen his name linked quite yeah. consistently to Liverpool, but I've 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 never really been certain as to whether it's just agent talk or or whether there's anything in it. Yeah, so I uh, I remember he was getting linked a lot in the in the summer with Liverpool and Leicester. I think was it Leicester? I'm, I'm sure it was. Um, at that point, I, I you know I had a, a little look. Um, or after that point, so I had a little look at some uh, reports on them and tried to gauge from people who had watched them. But I haven't watched a lot of, of, of them at all, really. Um, yeah, you know, I know that this season being in a really poor shelter side, um, we've conceded a lot of goals. But we know that isn't always necessarily a reflection on uh, on on a player, on a defender as a as a, as a sole person, I guess. Um, you know, the clips I've seen on White Scout seems to have really good physical traits. Uh, underlying numbers look fairly decent as well. Um, so it's kind of at that age, twenty. You know, it's a player who seems to have a lot of a lot of potential. Um, but in terms of the you know the, the real detail on the game, it's difficult for me to comment because I just haven't watched them enough. Yeah, I mean, this this was the piece that the Echo gave me. Obviously, because you was uh, you was doing Davis, so I've looked I've, I've looked into him a little bit more. Um, Bugs Bugs him on the echo hasn't isn't actually up at the time of recording, but it will be. Um, but even so, towards the end of the week, I'll write a newsletter. I'll send the newsletter out to the email addresses of people who've signed up, and at the end, I'll do um I'll do a little further reading box, and I'll tag my piece and I'll tag Dave's piece for anyone who wants to read them. But um, yeah, he he he, he looks like a. A big talent. I think that's probably the, the best way of putting it. And his talent is probably big enough that he's currently performing at a level that is beyond his years, really. You know, he's only 20 years old. He doesn't look it, he doesn't perform like he's 20 years old. Um, And obviously, as a result of that, his, his ceiling is really high. I'd say one of his biggest strengths is in the air, early dominant player. Uh, I looked at the the Bundesliga this season. Um, players across the pitch who've accumulated a minimum of thirty aerial duels. Um, Kabach ranks sixth in the division. Um, 
with a success rate of about 75.9%. You know, that's solid. Um, that's obviously Statsbomb's numbers, different to, to White Scouts. So not entirely comparable to Davis Davis's aerial numbers because we're, we're using different providers there. But still, you get a bit of an insight when it comes to looking at a player who's posting at around 55% compared to a player who's posting around 75%. So Kabak is certainly the more aerially, aerially dominant um, more so, funnily enough, than Diota Pamacano, who who ranks eleventh based on the same numbers. Um, you got Nicholas Sula ranking thirty sixth, Jerome Boateng ranking twenty fourth, Jonathan Tarr of Leverkusen ranking nineteenth. So you know, Kabak's right up there with the best in the in the league for aerial success. Um, and in terms of being the way he defends, aggressive. A proactive front foot defender uses his body, and to be honest, I think I've seen a few comparisons to the one and only Dejan Lovren, um, and I'm I'm probably going to cause a bit of conflict there when I say this, but I think the the fairly accurate I, I do I do I do see it I do see it, and I mean that in a in a positive way actually because I think all in all all things considered I think Dejan Lovren for a, f- a fair few years was was a top defender. Lovren's biggest problem was every now and then he, he had an error in him. But his, his general game, what you need from a centre-back in terms of being able to use the ball, being relatively quick, being good in the air, being up for a battle, strong, winning most of your duels, that sort of stuff. Lovren ticked a fair few boxes, hence why Klopp kept him round and, mm-hmm. and got rid of certain other players. So I, I can see the comparison with Kabak and Lovren, to be honest. Yeah, I uh, I agree. I was thinking as well, for all the kind of eye-rolling that comes with Lovren's name, he would have been welcome uh, within the squad, wouldn't he? He would have been um, someone who you'd be thankful to have had over these past few months uh, when this defensive kind of crisis has hit. Because, yeah, he, you know... <laughs> Not, not that I'm giving much insight saying this, but he may have things like the odd mistake in him, um, which I, I'd, I'd love to articulate with more analysis, but it's, it's the best way just, to summarise. Just, just to clarify, you're referring to Lovren there. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, come yeah, on, okay. yeah. Sorry, to be clear, I'm talking about Lovren. Uh, you would have, it, it would, I think Liverpool would have preferred to have him available over these last few months and maybe left in this coming summer or even in, in this window of, once Liverpool made these signs. So to have someone who's potentially performing at, uh, or as a similar profile to him, but maybe a higher ceiling, uh, can only, for my opinion, can only be seen as a, as a positive. Yeah. I mean, just, just, just to be clear on, on the Lovren thing, I think it's, it's a stylistic thing that I think I'm getting at. Um, like, I think it was uh, Michael Cox who, 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 who come out with the, the kind of comparison that when you look at a centre back pair and he's always viewed centre backs as a cat or a dog, bit based on how they perform on the pitch. Obviously, it, it kind of, without me even explaining it, it, it's just common sense to, to understand where I'm coming from there. Van Dyke, for example, is a cat, quite clearly. Cool, composed, doesn't really dive in, nothing like that. Whereas Lovren for me was a, a dog. Lovren was more engaged in the fight. More, more inclined to chase the ball and chase opponents and all that sort of stuff, more inclined to put a foot in. And I think 
Kabak's just more of them. Kabak's more of a, a stopper than than a cover type defender. Maybe I think he's different to Matip in that sense. Probably a bit closer to a Gomez, uh, Lovren type. Um, I don't. The, the positive thing on that is I think he's a lot younger, obviously, than than Lovren. So Klopp's getting them rather than getting them at the age of twenty five, which I think was the case with Lovren. He's getting. Kabak at the age of twenty, whereby he can still he can still shape his game, he can still impact how he plays and stuff like that, can still coach him through things and and stuff. And obviously, with him being a lot younger as well, he's he's got a bit of pace on Love and he's a bit quicker than him. Not quick to the extent where it's a bit silly and it's like Gomez and Van Dijk. He's not quite that level, but he's not slow enough to get you know targeted as a weakness, for example. So, um. Considering we're getting them for for a, I think it may, might be a two million loan fee, and the option to buy might be eighteen million. As I said, he's a he's a big talent. He's got a high ceiling if he can get certain aspects of his game in order, and if he can, you know, improve certain areas. He's he's got a, he's a big talent. He's got a high ceiling. So Liverpool could be getting a, t- a top defender there for the next decade, really, for for, for eighteen million, twenty million. So you know, again, it's just another. A different type of deal to Davis, but another example of Liverpool ensuring that no matter what, there's always value present in in, in the deal. Yeah, yeah, it's basically an audition, isn't it? And uh, if you're looking at a player who looks to be a top talent, you're almost guaranteed that you'll be able to purchase him in the summer. If you you know look at him day in day out in matches, and you think even despite his age, he hasn't got the he probably in in their opinion. The Liverpool recruitment team isn't going to go on and be a, a top player, then then you're not obliged to buy him. Uh, I agree. I think it's a, a you know a good deal, and I just think considering where Liverpool were, you know, this time last week, um, and they, they were up against it a little bit. I think what what's important to to touch on this is it's quite clear, isn't it, that even though Liverpool were going to let the window come and go without recruiting, they've they've always got the short list of names ready to to pursue. Um, and I think you saw that yesterday, didn't you? You saw them sounding out maybe the the top four from that list. But I don't know what order it would have been in. But you know, you got like. To be honest, Dave, I'm glad you've just flagged that because that's that's going to give us a chance to to blow our own horn, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Go on. Because yeah. uh, apparently, the, the the player Liverpool were trying to buy is is the player that, funnily enough, me and Dave both had on our list mm. in November. When we did the centre backs episode after um, Gomez got injured, Dave picked two and I picked two. We didn't compare until we actually got on the podcast, and we both had um, Douche Kaletaka, who currently plays for Marseille. And the word yesterday, according to plenty of reliable sources, was that Liverpool were in form. Twenty-three million, I think, might have been the fee. Uh, his girlfriend posted a, a Beatles song on an Instagram feed, but I think. I didn't know it, that. It, yeah, uh, oh. them, they were walking on a beach with with all we all you need is love playing <laughs> in the background, um, and apparently the deal fell through a little bit because Marseille simply didn't have time to get a replacement, and because of that, Liverpool probably would have had to pay more to to twist their arm. Liverpool didn't do that. Maybe it'll happen again in the future, but it would have been nice to be honest because it was the player that me and you both had. And mm. it would have been nice for them to say because you know, yeah. I suppose it adds a degree of credibility to the podcast, maybe. But uh, uh, yeah, at least, at least you can conclude though that he's obviously on that list of targets, isn't he? 
um, which says, you know, we're, we're kind of in and around the, the, the right ballpark in terms of potentially players that, you know, that Liverpool would be looking at. Yeah, I must admit, I'd, I'd have preferred him to Kabach. I think there's a reason Kabach was, was below him on the, on the shortlist, it looks like. But nevertheless, it's, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing him play. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if, the, if they get thrown in immediately. Because mm. we've got Brighton at home, and then we have Manchester City. So if they get thrown in, they get thrown in at Brighton. You, you don't throw them in at, at Manchester City, do you? So mm. it's going to be an interesting one to keep an eye on that. Obviously, by the time we next speak on the later episode this week for the Manchester City preview, they they hopefully will have played and we'll be able to elaborate a little bit on what we see what we saw. But when it comes to quickly, you know, outgoings, a little bit surprised. That Takumi Minamino left for uh, for Southampton on loan. I'm surprised that our later come, but um, had this had this been a story building across January and then eventually uh, concluded with them leaving on loan, I don't think I would have been. I think I was just shocked that it happened. It seems to happen so late. Um, but no, no, I'm not that shocked really. Uh, I think he's. Unfortunately, he, he has struggled over these twelve months. And what I would say on that is, it, it's it's probably one that has you know, for all the pats on the backs for the recruitment team, this one hasn't worked out. Um, and there's no other way really. I think you can sugarcoat it. But there is a big caveat uh, in that at the time it was made, it looked it did look good on paper. Because I'm funny enough. I'm reading a book at the moment about um, the Red Bull group and, and how they came into the football industry, you know, getting involved with the likes of uh, Salzburg, Leipzig and obviously New York and so on. Um, and there was a small section on on Leipzig um, that then goes on to Salzburg and talks about um, Liverpool playing them in the Champions League last year uh, and talks about Minamino as well. And two things that stood out for for me was the first was he was scouted by RB um, for eighteen months at Osaka before they even made a move for them. Um, so it kind of shows that he kind of slugged out a little bit and kind of proved his worth. Um, but the second was it said that he struggled to adjust when he arrived at Salzburg as well. Um, and the thing that kind of changed that was Jesse Marsh kind of gave him a real good run in the team. And he, he took advantage of that uh, and managed to, you know, start producing his best form, solidify, solidify himself in the team and went from there, really. And I just wonder, that's been really difficult to do at Liverpool, hasn't it? Because of how good they've been, how they're trying to compete on so many fronts. They can't really afford to draw or lose games. They have to win them all. So it's really hard to dislodge top talents and kind of have a, have a you know, transition period. But maybe it's Southampton, if he gets played week in, week out, you might just see him producing his best stuff and, you know, get that confidence, get that adjustment to the Premier League that Liverpool could benefit from next year. The thing is as well, if he does go there and do well and he comes back and Liverpool still don't really want him, if he, if he was to sell him to a Premier League club or, or sell him to Southampton, who I'm led to believe wanted some sort of option to buy in there, it probably would be more than the 7.5 Liverpool paid for him. So mm. it, it, it was one of them at the time that even if he didn't really perform, even if it didn't really go well, Liverpool were never really going to have to take it much of a hit on this player. Liverpool were going to get some sort of profit because of how cheap we were getting him for. Um, but yeah, it just doesn't seem to have worked. And I think there's been 
plenty of speculation surrounding why you know he's been behind the scenes. What why hasn't he been getting games? And it's quite unlike Klopp, I think, because the last time he played, he scored. But um, I, I remember Klopp did an interview with Gary Lineker in his office in his office, and uh, Gary Lineker just kind of asked him, you know, what what do you do when when players aren't playing? You know, how how do you keep them happy? Because you seem to be able to to, to keep harmony in a squad when when players are playing every week and Klopp just kind of said well, if a player comes to me and asks why he's not playing well, I'll be able to tell him I'll be able to help him stuff like that he said but the truth is that you're not you're not good enough and I think I think it's it kind of is as simple as that would, would mean I mean I don't think we have to think much beyond that I just don't think he's he's at the level I think it's you know there's not much beyond it Liverpool had a elite team at the minute going for league titles, Champions Leagues and stuff. And, you know, for whatever reason, Minamino doesn't seem to be up to the standards, whether he's settled or not, you know, remains to be seen and stuff. But I don't think we over- need to overthink it much. I think I have a, a lot of faith in Klopp's ability to manage a squad. I think he's shown to be one of the best around at, at doing it. And for Minamino, not to get minutes, he's just, he's clearly just not, not at the level, not good enough for whatever reason. So, you know, good luck to him out there. I think it's a good move for him. I think it's it's as good as a move he could, as you could possibly get, to be honest, in the Premier League. I think if he's going to make it in the Premier League, it'll be there. Mm-hmm. Um, in, a, in a system like that, playing for a manager like that, that's that of play. Uh, lower expectations and stuff. So hopefully he does well. But I don't think it bodes well for him, future-wise, considering, you know, he's... Um, People forget he's. I think he's twenty six. You know, he's not a kid anymore. Mina Mino. So, I wouldn't be surprised if if he does well and we end up selling him in the summer. To be honest, but we'll, we'll see how he goes. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Well, another landscape that's changed considerably since we last spoke is on the pitch because Liverpool were going into this week, and I must be honest, I was. As concerned as I have been for about the past eighteen months, I was looking at Spurs, I was looking at West Ham, and I was I was concerned that Liverpool were going to come away with from these matches without a win. But you know, egg on my face, Liverpool have um, turned the corner. It looks like two really really good performances and two deserved wins with Spurs in particular. The expected goals on the day was two point one for Liverpool. And just 0.2 for Spurs. 14 shots to three. So, you know, proper dominant performance. Might have been a bit of a different story if Son's opening goal was a stud. Because, as we said before last week, it's a different game if you if Spurs can take a lead against you. Mm. But obviously Liverpool managed to turn it round. And um, I think it was it was one of our best displays of the season. Yeah, yeah. Struggle to add anything on that. I totally agree. I thought uh, it looked tricky on paper. I'm sick of us doing our predictions because uh, just have a knack of making us look stupid. I feel like we kept backing them for the wins when uh, they were going through that um, that difficult period, and then we we started talking about the threat of maybe losing, and uh, and then this happened. But yeah, the people don't know that that was actually intentional. That that was a bit of tactics. I was just trying to uh, play with faith. Yeah, it's called the Christian Walsh crying it in. I think he's the <laughs> master of it. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, I thought. I'll be honest, Josh. I was really, really impressed with this performance. I thought it was 
dominance from start to finish, really. I agree. I think had that goal stood, maybe maybe it does change things a little bit. Um, but in in relative terms of this season with VAR, it was it was a fairly conclusive offside, wasn't it? Uh, compared to some of the ones that get given. Uh, so you know it was offside. Should have been flagged offside. Um, and yeah, I just thought the the team mechanics worked really well. Um, I know Kane goes off the pitch, but I thought. Even in the first half, okay, he wasn't. He looked a little bit ginger, shall we say, from the injury. But I, I thought he wasn't doing a lot. I just thought Liverpool looked really controlling. Um, even against like Ndombele, I thought Ndombele kept illustrating just how dangerous he can be and how good he can be. But even if he managed to get him, get himself five yards, it was just little on for them because Liverpool were doing so well in other areas of the pitch. And yeah, that, I think. It was, in many ways, a kind of perfect performance. Yeah, a little bit of a stroke of luck for Liverpool to um, for, for Kane to go off after forty five minutes. Obviously, a lot of what they do, particularly in attack, goes goes through him. He's the man to feed Son a lot of the time. So, yeah, a little bit lucky there. But um, I think the way in which Liverpool set up, obviously at the start, particularly, was a little bit different. I was a little, little tiny bit surprised that um, Wayne Album seems to drop back as the six. With Thiago used as an eight, um, I think you wrote about this, didn't you? So, uh, you know, I let you take the floor on it, but I thought it was an interesting move, and I think, you know, in hindsight now, it 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 worked. You know, it worked fairly well, and we, we used it again for West Ham. Yeah, yeah, it did. It, um, obviously, we know kind of why Naldum um, can basically do. Uh, well, that's the best way to put it. He can do anything, can't he? Really, in that the midfield, com- the chameleon, yeah, the chameleon. Yeah, um, that's it. So we. He kind of held that position really well. Uh, I think he's proven to be a lot less erratic than than maybe Thiago. Uh, we both picked up on something quite similar last week, didn't we? Um, but, you know, Thiago seems to go to the floor. Uh, relatively speaking, he hasn't played a lot, but he goes to the floor a lot. Uh, consequently, you know, gives away kind of fouls as well. I think Thiago, um, Wijnaldum is a lot more measured in his defensive approach. I think he presses really well. He doesn't overcommit. So he kind of naturally suits being that six more. And you got Milner. He was flanked by Milner, who was almost tucking in to to form like a... And, and Klopp alluded to it, so this isn't guesswork. He loses it after the game. But you know, it was almost like a double pivot slash two-man six um, with Thiago then able to, to push further forward, impact the game further up the pitch during the, the front three, almost as creating like a, a four-man. Um, attack and you know Thiago ends up having his most touches in the attack and third uh, of the season his fewest in the defensive third and I think when you think of Thiago's profile you want him high up the pitch don't you not that he's some sort of goal and assist machine but he, I think he's very important in the attack and build up phase when you get into those deeper areas of the opposition's half and yeah so as I said he, he, he was given more freedom to push further forward knowing that the protection come from Wayne Aldum initially, but also Milner tucking in. Um, and sometimes, if you look back on that game, it looked often like it, almost like a four-two-three-one formation. Um, you know, like a, the back line, two in front, and then you got like the the four in, in front of the two. But yeah, the said, I really liked the mechanics of it. Um, Robert about it afterwards, and I thought it worked really well on on the night. Yeah, and I did as well. I liked um, I thought when Liverpool were going through the tricky period. I did toy with the idea of 
you know, when something like this is happening, you, you can't really measure the impact on, on the mental side of things. And I did think at the time, you know, I'm not sure if I'd just kind of include Milner for, for the next few games, just, just as a, a, a vocal punter, a, a leader, a man who's been there. I know it's kind of like intangibles that like you can't really measure and stuff like that. But with Henderson dropping back into mid into defence at times, have Milner in the midfield. You know, Klopp seems to use Milner when when Liverpool uh, maybe have a lead in big games. Milner will come on maybe seventy minutes gone and and just kind of help his team see the game out. He's the big man in the dressing room before the match, relaying plenty of the instructions that Klopp's ran through in the uh, the pre-match analysis and all that sort of stuff. So he's just that kind of player, and I think I think he he's been massive for Liverpool this week. Not not necessarily in terms of how he's specifically contributed with the ball. But just, just kind of his his presence. It, it, I know it's again, it's an intangible experience. What what does it mean, sort of thing? But mm-hmm. anyone who's played the game on the pitch, you you can't really put a value on on having one of those lads next to you, just kind of coaching you through what might be a tricky period and stuff. Um, and obviously, Thiago playing a little bit more more further forward, able to impact things in and around the final third rather than moving Liverpool towards the final third, which is what he's been doing in the weeks before. I think he was in and around number 10 position at times. I think I saw one or two comments that he was kind of a little bit of like a, a double 10 with, with Firmino at times. Um, and yet it was, just, it was just a top performance and obviously Liverpool kept that make-up for the West Ham game really. In a way, at least. Mm. I mean, Wijnaldum was still as a six. Thiago mm. was still as an eight of sorts. Mm. But without Mane and without Firmino, and obviously Origi comes in, plays up front. Mm. Shaqiri comes in, plays as a number 10. And Liverpool played what looked like uh, a midfield diamond, which mm. is a, a formation that Liverpool... I've kind of had a little bit of an affinity with for, for, for the past... Decade. Every now and then, a diamond seems to come into Liverpool's makeup, and we, we always seem to play really well with it for a period. We did it with Rodgers and stuff, and Klopp does it every now and then. It's I don't think it's it's ever going to be a, a primary formation for Liverpool, but every now and then, when you cut the players for it and you have to adjust, it it does tend to work. Mm. I think you 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 just touched on it at the very end there. I think players and adjustment adjustments are key, aren't they? Um, as you look at Marigi, for example, um, and I think he really struggles to kind of be this this wide man. Um, he's not he's not really a natural. I, mean, I don't know what Origi is at this stage, to be honest. But um, having Salah is kind of like a, a centre forward is, is perfect. I think Shakiri do, does does quite well as a at the at the tip of a diamond, doesn't he? And then um, we've already talked about obviously Wijnaldum staying in that six area. What Milner does as well, and Thiago able to just push a little bit more forward. So, you know, on paper, it, it really worked. Um, did it, when you seen the team news? Did you expect it, or did it catch you off guard a little bit until you started? It caught me off guard. Yeah, I didn't expect. Yeah, same. Yeah. Um, yeah, same. But when but, it, when it played out, I was I was happy it was getting used because it it one thing a diamond should always give you it should always give you control in the middle of the park. It should always yeah. give you an element of dominance in the centre of the pitch and it's up to the opposing team to start exploiting your diamond by by switching the play and really using the flanks but I don't think West Ham ever really did there was one moment no. I think where I think maybe Declan Rice switched it to Cresswell and they got a bit of an overload on the 
on strength side of the pitch. But other than that, Liverpool had real control for large periods, and it, I think it stemmed from from what a diamond gives you. Yeah, and I also think obviously a diamond's naturally missing width, isn't it? But when you've got wing backs like Liverpool do, they 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 provide the width, and it's you know you end up getting a really good kind of um, positions right across the pitch. Uh, so it worked really well, and. This was another game that I thought, you know, could be really difficult. But watching it, especially with without some key players, but watching it, I just thought Liverpool were were really on it again. I don't, I, I wouldn't even say West Ham played particularly poorly, in my opinion. Um, it just felt like they were, you know, they were Liverpool were the superior side. They are the superior side, and there's there's little you can do really as an inferior team when you come up against these teams and they're, they're on song. And I thought Liverpool were. Yeah, I I was really impressed with the performance. I I thought Liverpool in the first half had total control, without really having much of much of the the, the real score and threat. And I think in the second half, Liverpool kept the majority of that control, but just added goals to it really. And I think throughout, Liverpool kept West Ham quiet, which is, you know, before the game, I I, I looked at it and thought. West Ham have got a good side there. I, I, I thought I looked at Suchek and, and Rice in the middle of the park, and as a double pivot, they tick a lot of boxes that you'd want. You know, they can cover a lot of ground. Big physical players can both use the ball, but can both put a foot in as well. And then ahead of that, you know, they had they had creative types who should, in theory, be good in transition. You know, you had Ben Rama there, you had Antonio, Pablo Fornells. These are players who are, who are di- difficult. To manage one v one, Liverpool just coped really, really well. I thought, and the expected goals on the day, Liverpool posted one point eight, and West Ham posted bang on one. But what I will say about West Ham posting that is, I'd say over fifty percent of West Ham's expected goals stems from, you know, Craig Dawson's tapping from the set piece on the eighty seventh mm. minute. You know, it did stem from a corner and stuff, but he does end up hitting it with his foot and it's it's in the six yard area. So that chance you're looking that that's that's registering as a big chance that and I think without that, West Ham West Ham's expected goals is is very low for the game. So it, it, according to the XG it was probably a two 0 Liverpool win. Uh, and then, you know, class just kind of shows, especially with the the counter attacking goal that Liverpool mm. scored. It, which seems yeah. to be a, a regular theme whenever we go to play West Ham away from home for some reason. Mm. Yeah, they're nice those ones, aren't they, when they come off? Uh, you know, very, um, very Manchester United 2009, but then as you just touched on there, uh, very Liverpool against West Ham previously. So, yeah, it was a, I thought, you know, I thought the, the ball by uh, Alexander-Arnold was good. I thought Chikiris was good in the sense that he put it in the right area, but I do think it, it Salah makes that goal. I think the touch and the finish is, is integral, really. I think a, a lesser player might skew that touch uh, or miss the one-on-one, but you know, he's, it felt like he had his mojo a little bit back in that game, um, which is probably a good sign for the next few weeks, you know, getting some big games. Uh Quickly as well, by the way, I know he came off the bench and he didn't do a lot, but I think Jones had a big impact, didn't he, on that on that first goal? Because he, uh, yeah, it felt like maybe pre- even though we've just been rightly um, applauding the team selection and the system and stuff, it felt like when he replaced Milner, 
he'd obviously had the instructions to just be a little bit more free and direct. Um, and he car- I think he carries the ball really well towards the edge of the penalty area leading up to that goal. And then I think he might even get the assist, doesn't he, uh, for Salah's goal. Um, yeah. Although why scouts, I'm just looking now, why scouts haven't credited it with him, but I can't see why not because it was a, an obvious assist for me. But anyway, um, yeah, I think he does well and he probably deserves a little nod. Well, I think I think Klopp's subs in general were spot on because seconds after the Jones comes on, he registers an assist, and for Liverpool's third goal, the um, the genie wild and tapping, the actual link up play to get Liverpool in the box was was Firmino and then a little back heel from Oxley Chamberlain, and then Firmino squares it for Wijnaldum to tap in, but Firmino and Ox both came on together around the seventieth minute, I think. So Klopp's used three substitutes there. And two of them bagged an assist, and Ox didn't. But he um, he played the pass before the assist, if you like. So you know it changes games. But I think just on Liverpool's counter second goal there, I thought it was interesting in the match of the day. I'm not sure if he calls it Dave Eddie Howard on, and he said uh, uh-huh. when he was at Bournemouth, he said when he, specifically when Bournemouth faced Manchester City and Liverpool because of the threat that they offer from corners going up the opposite end of the pitch so quickly. Eddie Howe and Bournemouth would actually sacrifice one attacking player going into the box to head the corner in the goal. They'd actually sacrifice one of those, keep them outside the box to prevent counter-attacks from materialising. So, you know, it's, it's just the impact that I suppose fear can have on an opposing team that, you know, some managers will adjust and will go more defensive to compensate against that attacking threat. And if they don't, they'll get done like 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 West Ham did against Liverpool. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It does surprise me, Eddie Howe saying that because I think it's a, it is a real risk. You know, it's a you're in a, a vulnerable situation, really, aren't you? Because think of another game state beyond the set piece where you would commit centre backs and multiple players into the penalty area. Um, in open play, like you just wouldn't do it because of this obvious and obvious risk of being punished on the counter. But yeah, on set pieces, because of the law of, um, you know, potentially scoring, you, you do it, don't you? But it's it's such a vulnerable situation, and wouldn't surprise me if if teams like Liverpool top sides do do focus on trying to score from these counter attacking situations in training. Yeah, just a quick word on Naf Phillips then. Before we move on to Brighton, because I I thought he was he was superb for the second time this season against West Ham. I thought he was um he was absolutely spot on. If if Kabak comes in, or if Davis comes in and they have a debut like Phillips performed against West Ham, people will be getting really excited. Mm. Yeah, he's uh, I I think he's looked fairly good when he's coming. You know, more seasoned. Liverpool fans, maybe rather than analysts, have said to me that he's uh, they don't particularly rate him. So I wonder whether I've missed something. Uh, but I think he looks okay. Um, it, it just I don't know if you picked up on this. I thought you might have, but I think if you did, you would have maybe said it now. But I had a quick look on White Scouts and obvious caveat: he's only played four hundred and thirty minutes. But uh, of all Premier League centre backs who've played over four hundred minutes so far this season. His aerial dual success rate is eighty percent, and it's the best in the Premier League. <laughs> no, which is, uh, I said obviously it's a small, small sample, uh, but it's it, you know it's, it speaks volumes, doesn't it? That those 
those games that he has played in, he's been really dominant in the air. Yeah, I'll double check now on the stats bombs numbers to see if they've got them the same because uh, he, he has shown up as an early, early dominant player. Mm. Um, so according to stats bomb, he ranks third uh, with 80% behind only Rodri at City and Anderson at Fulham centre back, mm. um, which is still you know top stuff. I mean, if you can keep yeah. that up, he'll, he'll, he'll help Liverpool this season. But I think, crucially, though, some people will will suggest that, you know, on the back of his performance, he, he can't really be dropped for, for one of the new lads. Yeah. My only issue with that is, I think West Ham were very well suited to him in terms of the, that, the direct game that Moyes was clearly going to play. And the aerial duels he was obviously going to have to contest. I think against Brighton midweek, Brighton had a lot more keep the ball on the floor type stuff, progressing through the thirds and things like that, balls in behind specifically. I think they tried a lot of through balls when we went and faced them away from home earlier in the season. So my only issue with that is, you know, the whole horses for courses thing. Whether Phillips is as suited to performing against Brighton compared to West Ham, you know, I'm not so sure. We might as well move on to Brighton with this ball. Mm. I'm not sure whether whether this would be a bit more of a platform for him to get his weaknesses in the spotlights a bit more. Um, it's a tricky one. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think that his profile suits that. You know, suits that kind of uh, facing a more how would you label it physical side? I guess not. Not that I'm trying to uh, put Brighton down, but Brighton are probably a better footballing team. Aren't they? they have a, a more clear philosophy, identity, um, and that you know they're, they're quite a, a difficult team. It was a draw, wasn't it, early on in the season against Liverpool? Um, yeah, it was, wasn't it? One all. Um, I know the goal came late, but we both said, didn't we, after that match that he performed? Fairly well, and Liverpool struggled in that game. And I mean, I'm just having a look now. Josh, you've you've only conceded one goal uh, in the past four league matches, um, and that was against Manchester City away. So they went to so they went to the Etihad, conceded once, and that was it. Um, since then, they've gone to Leeds, clean sheet, Fulham at home, clean sheet, but then Tottenham at home, clean sheet as well. So you know, you look at it and you think. Um, we know they've looked okay on the underlying metrics for a while at both ends of the pitch. Um, we've put their underperformance down to player quality in both boxes, but you know maybe there is an element of regression to the mean as well. Uh, you know, kind of, and that's what we're seeing now. Maybe they they, they are difficult to score goals against because the the decent side. I mean. With Liverpool picking up a bit of form, I am going into this one naturally with a bit of confidence. But I'm not I'm not really sure if I should because I, I do rate Brighton highly on the performance side of things at least. I don't think they've been that good this season in terms of getting over the line and convert, converting those performances into results. But on the performance side, they do look they do look strong. Uh, that wasn't Dave Gallagher, not me. I think that was his dog. Yeah, that, yeah. I, that was like, <laughs> what just happened there? Yeah, the opposite was like Brighton. It wasn't like Brighton. <laughs> yeah, maybe, it's, maybe it's a sign, mate, that we're in for a tough game. Right? <laughs> um, but yeah, I think look, looking at Liverpool's season, Brighton have been one of Liverpool's toughest games, if not the, the toughest game. I know Liverpool nearly snatched the win 
But if we did snatch a win on that day, it probably would have been undeserved, to be honest. And that's, that doesn't often happen. Liverpool getting undeserved wins, but Brighton did deserve something from the match earlier in the season. And of all the games Liverpool have played in the Premier League so far this year, Liverpool took the fewest shots against Brighton. In that match, Liverpool managed only only six efforts on goal, um, which is the, f- the fewest Liverpool have, have posted this season. I think overall, Liverpool tend to average about 15 to 16 per game. And the second fewest um, above that is, is the game against West Ham at Anfield. We posted eight shots. The game against City away, we posted nine. But yeah, Brighton away, we only posted six. And if you look at their actual defensive numbers, they are seriously impressive. Um, so for expected goals against, not including penalties, Brighton is second in the league. So according to expected goals, Brighton have got the second best defence in the league for shots against the third. So again, really, really high up. And the fourth for goals against I think they suffered a little bit early on because of the goalkeeper and stuff like that. I think he's since gone to Arsenal. But um, on the defensive side of the game in particular, Brighton seemed really, really well coached, really well drilled. And it's it's going to be tricky for Liverpool to, to you know to penetrate this team and to, to get good chances in around the penalty spot. Yeah. yeah. I'm just having a look now with the uh, just pure goals conceded. And, you know, from open play, only... Wolves, Leicester, Tottenham, and City can see the fewer. Um, you know, they, they seem to have a bit of a set piece issue, didn't they? At the start of the season. Um, I've just checked on that now. They can see that from seven set pieces, which is as many as Liverpool, it's about the seventh worst. They also conceded, uh, six penalties, which is a joint league high. So, you know, they've, they've kind of had, I guess, maybe not set pieces, but certainly penalties. You consider them non repeatable actions, don't you? Um, and when when you remove them, you know you uh, you've got really good online numbers and a, a really good kind of defensive record, I guess. So it is a, it is going to be quite tough maybe to break these down. Um, it could be a bit of a bit of a tricky game. I'm like you, I I'm still confident from a Liverpool perspective because I think Liverpool look to be finding the feet again. Um, they'll probably be boosted by a few new faces in the in the dressing room as well. So I do expect them to win, but maybe they won't blow them away like people might expect when you're coming up against a team that's 17th in the Premier League table. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned set pieces there, actually, because that's one thing I forgot to mention in reference to Kabach. Um, he scored six goals in the Bundesliga over the past two seasons excluding this season. This season, he hasn't got any yet. But last season, he got three. Season before, he got three. And all six of those stem from uh, set-piece deliveries into the box. Liverpool have lacked that a little bit this season. And when I looked into it for the newsletter last week, when I looked at Trent Alexander-Arnold, um, he sent most of Trent's key passes. I think it was over 50% of his key passes last season came from set pieces, dead balls. Robertson, I think only 25% of his came from dead balls. And then shock this season, Robertson's looked more like his usual self than Trent has. But I think a lot of it's because Trent's set pieces have been a 
a lot less effectual. They've had to play Shaw's a lot more because Liverpool haven't had a presence in the box. With Kabach, Liverpool might have a bit of that back. So it'll be interesting to see if he plays against Brighton, considering that seems to be one of the few ways you can actually get at this team defensively. Mm. On the attacking side, Brighton rank 10th for expected goals in 90, uh, excluding penalties. Um, 8th for shots, but 15th for goals. So that suggests that, you know, if they're, if they're ranking 8th for shots, 10th for XG, but 15th for goals, you know, shows that they're, that they're not maybe the type to actually put those chances away. They maybe need a few of them. Um, and that probably sums up what they were like when we faced them first early in the season, away from home. You know, I, I recall them creating a fair few good chances, but they just they just don't put them away. They struggle at the business end of both pitches, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. So it's, um, I mean, we were just applauding the uh, the defence, weren't we? And, and obviously, you just talked about the underlying numbers, but um, even in this relatively good run of form, they're in now, you know, didn't score at the Etihad, um, scored one against Leeds, didn't score against Fulham at home, and, and just a one goal against Tottenham as well. So that does reaffirm that, yeah, they've, they've made themselves maybe a little bit more difficult to to break down and to score against. But is that coming at the expense of, of the attack as well? You know, the, the underlying numbers for the season says they're not a great attack side and the the recent goal record says that too. So, yeah, it could um, it could maybe be a low-scoring game, but one that you'd probably fancy Liverpool to come out on top. Well, they tend, they tend to feel about, I think there's about eight centre-backs per game or something like that. that I mean, it's no, probably no surprise that they're good on the defensive side and not so good mm. going forward. But do you, do you think this one might be a case of, like, if Liverpool manage to score two, we will probably win? <laughs> I know that's probably the case most weeks anyway, but th- this more than ever seems like the type of team that you you can just if you know if you're outscoring to a certain level, Brighton are going to achieve two goals in a single game very infrequently this season. I think based on the way they based on the way they tend to perform. Well, let's have a look now. How many times they've done it quickly? I've got the information here. So they they've done it once at home all season. Um... Ooh, that, this is quite bizarre, Josh. They've uh, they've done it once at home. Uh, no, sorry, twice at home, but they've done it one, two, three, four, four times on the road. So that's <laughs> that's, that's about, about forty percent of the away matches they've scored it. But I don't that's think beautiful. you can read. Yeah, I don't think you can read too much into that. Uh, it's just interesting. But yeah, I agree. I, I do. I do think should um, should Liverpool maybe get the first goal. And a second to kill the game, and I, I don't think there's going to be much, um, much of a route for Brighton to come back. Although my predictions have been horribly wrong for a while now, after it's doing so well. So who knows? Well, you say that, Dave. We are at that point. So predictions ahead of this one. What what are you suggesting? I'm going to be so boring uh, and go with two nil, two nil of pool. Yeah, I think I'm going to go 2-0, but a tough 2-0. It won't be comfortable. I think for most of the game, there'll only be one goal in it. And I think if Liverpool manage to bag two, I think the second will come fairly late on with Brighton maybe committing a few players forward. That's that's just roughly how I see the game going. Yeah. Lately, um, it's been really difficult to predict anything. 
I probably should predict a 3 0 loss and Liverpool maybe win 4 0 or something like that. But, <laughs> um, yeah, hopefully, we're a bit more on. Hopefully, we've got a bit more accuracy this week when it comes to the prediction. But I just can't. We have to paint Brighton as a team that are very well coached, um, very difficult to play against, really, really good in defence, not so good in attack, albeit the, the quite good at generating opportunities. You just can't put the ball in the back of the net. So, you know, that is what Liverpool are facing. What ends up coming out the opposite side, I don't know. But I'm going to say 2 0. Dave's saying 2 0. Um, and we'll be back next, no, we'll be back later in the week um, mm. to speak about Manchester City. And as I said, what, what will hopefully be a top of the table clash. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us, Dave. Cheers, mate. Cheers, everyone. And uh, be sure to tune in later in the week. Cheers. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.